Acts chapter 3 this morning. <clears throat> and we looked at this last week, so I don't want to go back over and I don't want to have to recover all of the ground that we, uh, that we covered last week. Um, but um, I want to just read with you this morning just uh, a few portions of this chapter just so that we can uh, see kind of where we're going and what we're dealing with this morning. Acts chapter 3. And you remember here, uh, beginning in verse 1, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, uh, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Skip down to verse 11. Now as a lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up, and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Let's begin with a word of prayer this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we come this morning before you, we acknowledge that without you, we are lost. We are without the knowledge of the truth. Without you, we are without hope. Lord, it is our hands, it is our guilt, it is our sin, which ultimately was the reason for the cross. And Lord, I pray this morning you would help us to acknowledge that truth. To recognize that it was, it was us. We are the reason that you died on the cross. But more than that, help us to acknowledge and to understand the wonderful truth of the Savior that we have. I pray this morning that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us to live for you because of what you have done and given for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In the briefest of moments, a man born without the ability to walk was given strength in his feet and began leaping about, overcome with excitement and joy at his newfound ability. As you can imagine, Seeing a man over 40, we've got a few years yet before you have to stand up here and stare at a man over 40. Seeing a man over 40 jumping around and crying out at the top of his lungs would attract a little bit of attention. 
And for those people who were in the temple preparing for that evening sacrifice and prayer, it certainly did. In fact, Luke tells us there in verse 11 that the people ran to Solomon's porch to see what had taken place. This was something that attracted a great deal of attention. There was a large crowd that gathered around Peter and John and this man to see just what had taken place. It may not seem surprising, but I think it was surprising. It ought to be surprising to us. That at that very moment, Peter stood up and decided to boldly preach the gospel. This is, of course, the same man who just a couple of months earlier had three times in the same evening denied that he even knew Christ. And here he is standing before a crowd in the same place. The Gospels tell us that Jesus used to teach sitting in Solomon's porch. The same place where Jesus used to teach, now there's Peter standing there. And he preaches to this crowd. Now, there are several points that deserve, deserve attention in this passage. And uh, I, we're, we could spend a lot of time here. And I don't want to do that. I, I want to try and, and draw out the essence of Peter's sermon. The essence of what he is trying to convey here this morning. And I'd like to survey the passage with you. We're going to go through the rest of chapter four and about the first half, or the rest of chapter three and about the first half of chapter four here, and just a, just a real brief survey. And then I want to focus in on the central theme of Peter's message and what that means for you and for me today. So let's take a look as we just over kind of get an overview of the passage. Here we have this large crowd that came together in verse eleven of chapter three. And Peter, in verse 12, begins, when he saw the crowd, he begins to speak to them. Peter's introduction is interesting. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? I mean, that seems kind of a strange way to start things off. If I had just healed someone who everyone knew had been lame for more than 40 years, a little bit of marveling would go on, don't you think? And that would seem natural to us. And yet Peter says, why do you marvel at this? Well, duh, Peter. Someone was just healed. Okay, that's a perfectly natural human reaction. And yet these people were Jews. They had the word of God. They knew, or they should have known, that the God that they claimed to worship was more than capable of performing such a miracle and that it didn't even begin to tax his power to do it. And yet to them, it was amazing. It was marvelous. Well, Peter asks that question. Then he says, well, why do you look so intently at us? Apparently, this crowd, when they rushed there, began to think that Peter and John were faith healers. That somehow Peter and John could contrive up a miracle at their whim. And Peter makes it abundantly clear that's not the case. He says, he asks them, why do you look at us? As though if it was by our own power or somehow our godless. Why do you think that we are somehow maybe some super spiritual giants that we can do this miraculous thing? It's not In our ability to do it. Peter was saying to them, hey, this is not about us. We can't do this. 
We didn't do it. It wasn't me, he said. And then he directs their attention to the one it was. He says it was Jesus. He said the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And it was in his name, he says, verse 16, it was, the, it was the name of Jesus that accomplished this miracle. It was Jesus' power and authority that healed this man. We looked at this a little bit last week, but it's, what is Peter trying to say? What is he getting at? He's, if the name of Jesus is powerful enough to heal this man's legs, if the name of Jesus is powerful enough to heal this man who's been lame from birth, and enable him not only to be able to get up and, and, and kind of begin to walk, but to jump and leap around as if he's been walking forever. If his name is powerful enough to do that, then his name is powerful enough to blot out our sins. That's what he's getting to, and, and, and we didn't read all the rest of the chapter, but if we look down through this chapter, that's what we see. And we see... There in verse 19, Peter says, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Hey, if Jesus could heal this man's legs, using, Peter says, using us as his instrument, if he could work through us and his power could perform this miracle, then guess what? If you repent, he can blot out your sins. He can forgive your sins. See, the lesser miracle proves his ability to do the greater miracle. Because forgiveness of sins is a far greater task than simply healing a body. There are a lot of things that doctors can do to heal our bodies. There is nothing they can do to forgive our sins. But Jesus Christ can. That's what Peter is saying here. That's the whole point of this miracle. This miracle is to demonstrate that not only is is God's power working through these disciples, but as Peter is going to explain, it is the proof... It is visible proof that Jesus Christ not only resurrected from the dead, but that he ascended to heaven and he poured out his spirit just like he promised. And it's the presence of the spirit in the lives of his followers that enables them to have the power of God. And to do, in this case, this miracle. And to proclaim the wonderful message of the gospel that can forgive sins. Peter preaches this message the rest of chapter 3. And again, we don't have time to look at all the details here. We are going to come back and look at a few things. But this is not unusual. We, we looked at this last week. Mark chapter 2, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed. And he explained that healing the paralytic man was proof that he had the authority to forgive sins. And now we see Jesus doing a miracle by proxy, if you will. Through his servants, through his apostles. In many ways, we see, in a a real tangible way here, we see the principle of ambassadorship. You see, what is an ambassador? I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of an ambassador, but someone who is an ambassador is essentially representing the entire authority of his government. And so we have, you know, we have a U.S. ambassador to uh, Great Britain. And he, he, in his role, exemplifies the entirety of our authority of our government to that country. 
When he stands before their leadership and he uh, negotiates or talks with them, he is in essence speaking for us. We have a government of the people, by the people, for the people. He is speaking for us on our behalf. So Peter and John are ambassadors. They are speaking with all of the power, all of the authority of the king who sent them. That's the, that's the picture we get here. Jesus verified his power to forgive sins by healing in Mark chapter 2. Peter demonstrated that Christ is just as powerful through his ambassadors to heal. And his name is just as powerful, even if it is preached through them, to forgive sins. There's no diminishing of the power of Jesus Christ and his name when it's spoken through his servants. When they preach the gospel, it's just as powerful as if Jesus Christ was standing there preaching the gospel and saying the exact same things. That's what Peter is saying here. Now we get to the end of chapter 3, we get into chapter 4, and what we see, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, <clears throat> being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The response on the part of the priests, the Sadducees, and the temple guard was not positive. In fact, the response was indignation. They were angry because Peter and John were preaching this message of the resurrection through Jesus Christ. Now you got to understand, we've talked about this before, but the Sadducees were uh, rationalists. They rejected the supernatural. And so for them to declare not only that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but that he then secures our resurrection, to declare that, in their minds, ridiculous. Absolutely, they just reject it completely. And so what do they do? They arrested Peter and John and took them into custody. The reaction of the people is a little bit different. Look at verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So there's an interesting reaction here, right? The same message Peter's preaching here and a reaction to it. The leaders, the religious leaders, their reaction is indignation. The crowd, when they hear it, many in the crowd believe. And I, how, how we interpret that number there is a little bit tricky, but I would suggest that, that probably what Luke is saying is that the number of men in the church in Jerusalem came to 5,000 at that point. Now we know there were 3,000 men who were saved at the day of Pentecost. Okay. So now, just, we don't know, day, days later maybe, you know, within, within a matter of days or possibly weeks, I suppose, okay. the number of men has come up to 5,000. Now that's not counting women and children, obviously, so there's significant-sized church here, significant-sized group of believers that have heard the gospel and have responded in faith. <clears throat> it's a powerful message. Jesus, or Peter and John spend the night there in custody, and then they're brought up on trial the next day. And, and I want to consider here as we look at this real quickly, but um, that Peter and John... 
are brought up on trial. We read these verses, verses 5 through 12. The question is, is posed to them by the religious leaders. By, by what power or by what name have you done this? Verse 7. Remember, we talked about this last week a little bit, but the name of Jesus represents his authority. It represents all of his power. It represents all of his person. They want to know, by whose authority are you doing this? Now Peter responds, and he says, if we're being judged, verse 9, for a good deed done to a helpless man, why would they, why would they judge Peter and John for healing someone? This is, seems kind of absurd, doesn't it? I mean, they took a man who was lame, who couldn't walk, who couldn't even go into the temple, because remember we talked about that last week, that because he was lame, he wasn't allowed to go into the inner precincts of the temple. They healed him. They made him whole. Gave him the ability to walk, to enter into the temple, to participate in worship, to be a full member of society. Not only that, but to earn his own way, to be able to live a life of hope and prosperity. And this is what they're being called up on trial for? That's the indication. Peter says, listen, if we're, if we're being judged for this, then let me explain to you how we did it. I love it because Peter doesn't, this is like a continuation of his message from the previous day. The previous day he said to the crowds, if you're amazed because you wonder how we were able to do this, let me explain to you how we did it. It's very simple. It wasn't us. It wasn't me. It wasn't John. It wasn't that somehow we have the magic touch. It wasn't that somehow we are so godly that we just have this power at our fingertips that you mere mortals couldn't possibly understand. That's not what he says. No. It was the name of Jesus Christ. It was the power of Jesus Christ, Peter says. And he just continues that. Right here, now he's, you know, he's not just addressing a crowd, now he's addressing the religious leaders, the trained, educated men. These are the bigwigs in Jerusalem. And Peter says, verse 10, Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Here Peter and John are being confronted with, really, threats. I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. The religious leaders threaten them. To be quiet about Jesus. And once again, Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the gospel about Christ. That's what he does. He seizes the opportunity. Here he is. It doesn't matter where Peter is. When he's standing there in the temple and, and a crowd comes and gathers, he preaches the gospel. Now he's brought up on trial. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel. It's all he's concerned with here. What a tremendous example. What a tremendous example of a man who understood what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, that he would receive power and that he would be a witness of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. So we have a great model here, a great example in Peter. He's standing here. He's witnessing. He's giving testimony to the reality of what Jesus Christ has said and done. And again, he says, listen, it wasn't us. It was, the, it was the name of Jesus Christ. There in verse 10, by him, this man stands here before you whole. Again, 
Here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. You want to, you want to know about Jesus Christ. You want to know the truth about Jesus Christ. Who is He? Who is He really? Is He really the Son of God? Is He really the Messiah? And Peter, you can almost picture Peter saying, why ask us? There's a lame man who can walk now because of him. Ask him. Just look at him. The evidence is staring you in the face. And when Peter said that, verse 13, we see the reaction here of the leaders. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They were silent. They were completely silent. They had nothing to say. How could they respond? How could you respond? Here's the man standing whole before you, completely healed. Standing, just the fact that he's standing before you. What more could they say? They had no recourse, no response. By the way, this shouldn't surprise us at all. Because the Word of God is true. The Word of God is true. And everything else that contradicts it is false. And it is fable, and it is lie, and it is myth. The Word of God is true. And so when you and I choose to stand and proclaim the Word of God, when we choose to say that this is the truth, we don't have to worry about someone trumping our argument, someone trumping the Word of God. It can't be done. Peter says, listen, you can say, you can make all the arguments, you can make all this, you can say everything you want, you can write books, And you can deny resurrection. You can deny the supernatural. You can do anything you want. But look at the man. He's standing right here. Jesus Christ healed him. The truth. You want to know who Jesus Christ is? He is who he claimed to be. And you killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And we saw it. And we're eyewitnesses. And we're standing here. We're telling you. It's all here. It's not, it's not difficult, it's not hidden, it's not a mystery. It's simple, it's straightforward, it's right in front of you. So what's the question? How do you respond? How do you respond to it? You can just almost picture Peter standing there in front of those religious leaders saying, listen, what more do you need? We, how else can I say this? How, how much simpler could I put it? It's right here in front of you. All of the proof, everything is right there staring you in the face. And yet, how do the religious leaders respond? We can see what they did. Verse 15, they commanded Peter and John to go aside out of the council. And they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But, there's their mistake. They should have said, no, they must be right. No, what do they say? But, so that it spreads no further, 
among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And I've got to be honest with you, as I read this passage, I almost want to laugh. I shouldn't, because it, it's much more serious than that. But I almost want to laugh, because this threat seems so empty. Here they are conferring among themselves and basically saying, we, there's nothing we can do to deny this. Can't, there's nothing we can do to put a spin on this to make this come out our way. It's already out there. Everybody has seen this. Let's threaten them to be quiet. On what basis? What argument do you have? And that's kind of Peter's response. They called them, verse 18, and they commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. <laughs> Peter here, I love it because Peter really frames their argument very clearly. You know, we, we as people, sometimes we, we, we try to put a good front. We try to maybe mask our real intentions. I think that's what they're doing here when they come to Peter and John. Oh, stop preaching this message. You're riling up the people. Stop it. And Peter says, wait, wait a second. Hey, whether it is right for us to obey you or to obey God, you decide that. Well, let's just take two seconds and think about that. What are these religious leaders going to say? Listen to us or listen to God? They can't say listen to us and still claim to be the religious leaders of Israel. And still claim that God is their God. But that's, Peter says, this is what you're trying to do. You're putting us in this position. You're telling us that if we are going to listen to you, we have to deny God. So that's our choice. You tell us what we should do. <laughs> but then he says this, verse 20, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Can't help it. Peter says, there's nothing else we can say. Of, this is what we've seen. This is what we've heard. We got nothing else. We're not making this up. We're not contriving anything here. All we're doing is preaching what we have seen and what we've heard. We're eyewitnesses. These threats do one thing, though. They make it very clear where the religious leaders stand on the issue of Jesus Christ. And so that in the future, Peter and John and the apostles and the Christians in Jerusalem are going to know that if they speak up and they start preaching about Jesus Christ, they are crossing the religious leaders. And they've been warned. But you can almost hear Peter here saying, okay, fair warning. It won't change anything. All we can do is preach what we know. All we can do is tell you about Jesus Christ because he's the truth. And we're eyewitnesses to it. That's the truth. We come to the end of the chapter, or the end of the passage here. And it says that when they had further threatened them, they let them go. Finding no way of punishing them because of the people. Since they all glorified God for what, they had, for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Then we look at this passage, and I want you to, I want you to see that Peter really was preaching one message here. That's all he was doing. 
It was divided up, part of it on one day, part of it on the next day. Okay, Not because he didn't have time to finish, but because he was interrupted. The religious leaders came in and arrested him before he could finish. And so Peter's message essentially continued, if you will. He preached this message to the crowd, and then he just continued it with the religious leaders. And his message had one central theme, and that's what I want to spend a moment looking at this morning. What was the central theme? What was the focus? Now, I know I, going through all of that with you, hopefully you kind of already see, you kind of already figure out what is the focus of Peter's message. When the crowd gathered to hear about how the lame man was healed, Peter pointed them to the name of Jesus Christ. When the Sanhedrin wanted to hear about the name, the authority in which Peter and John had done what they did, they pointed them back to the lame man. (laughs) You see, both of these instances are focused on the same thing. They're focused on Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ is the focus of Peter's preaching. For the crowd, he directs their attention to the name. The the, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they they ask about the name, but they're not really interested in hearing about Jesus Christ. (coughs) So Peter points them to the proof, the evidence. The lame man is healed, but he's healed in the name of Jesus Christ. The importance of the name of Jesus in this passage cannot be overstated. Just consider, if you will, we look through this whole passage... Peter declared, explained to the crowd and to the religious leaders that it was in the name of Jesus Christ that the layman was healed. Chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 10. <clears throat> Three times Peter declared very clearly that it was in the name of Jesus Christ that this layman was healed. In verse 12 of chapter 4. Peter said that it was in the name of Jesus Christ and by faith in his name that all men must receive the forgiveness of their sin. (coughs) I think it's interesting to notice, down in verse 18, that the Jewish leaders did not prohibit the apostles from preaching and teaching about God. They didn't prohibit the apostles from preaching and teaching really anything, except they, they, they forbade them from speaking in the name of Jesus. It was his name. That's what they focus on. Verse 18 is what this says. They commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. They didn't say, don't talk about God. You guys are ignorant. You don't know what you're talking about. They didn't say, don't talk about the law. Don't talk about the word of God. Don't talk about scripture. They said, don't talk about this Jesus. We don't want to hear about him. We don't want to hear about his name. We don't want you declaring the authority and the power that Jesus Christ has. That was what they found so offensive. The name of Jesus. But why emphasize the name? Because the name represents the person. Jesus' name bears with it all of the divine power and authority when it is received by faith and in the true knowledge of Christ. Now we're going to see, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that that there are other people who try to use the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 19, there's, there's some uh, men who try to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus. But the problem is they don't know Jesus. And so they try to use the name as if it were like a magic talisman. And the end result for them is they end up getting overcome and beaten and driven out by the demon. The name of Jesus by itself is not some magical thing. We can just throw out the name of Jesus and everything will be good. 
Peter explains here that it's faith in the name of Jesus. It's when Jesus' name, his authority, his power is received by faith. By faith in what? In him. The name represents him as a person, his entire being, everything that he said and did and was and is. And so when this man received healing in Jesus' name, he wasn't just receiving some magic touch. He was receiving the truth about Jesus Christ by faith. And that's why he was healed. Because it was only through that, the power of Jesus Christ only comes by faith. The single most important element of Peter's message is how each of us responds to Jesus Christ. You can see this as we look through the passage. In chapter 3, verse 13, Peter says that God exalted Christ as his servant, but the Jews rejected him. Verses 13 and 14, he says, Pilate would have released him, but the Jews demanded his execution. In verse 14, Jesus was the holy and righteous one, but his life was given in exchange for a murderer. Jesus was the prince of life in verse 15, but the Jews had him killed. Though the people killed Jesus, God raised him again to new life. The crowd in the temple responded positively to Peter's witness about Jesus and who he was, and many souls were saved. But the Jewish leaders continued to reject the truth. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, the Jewish council put Peter and John on trial. But Peter indicates there, when he says there in verse 11, this stone was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. What Peter was explaining to them is that it was they who were on trial. It was they who stood at the point of judgment. And the question was, would they receive and believe the truth about Jesus Christ? Or would they reject him? And then in verse 14, when Peter and John had spoken freely about Christ, the Sanhedrin were reduced to silence. What we see here is that it's a reaction to Jesus Christ. It's how we respond to Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's what's important here. And in the moments we have remaining, not very many, unfortunately, <clears throat> I want to ask this question. Who is this Jesus Christ that Peter is describing? His entire focus is put on this one person, the name of Jesus Christ that embodies who he is. And it's our response to him that's important. But who is he? What is Peter telling us? Well, I think we find some specific insights into the essence of who Jesus is and what he has done in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, the first part of Peter's message. He uses several terms to refer to Jesus in these verses. I want to look at these really briefly with you. Look at the first one right there in verse 12, chapter 3. Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you look intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. Peter here chooses this word very specifically. It's 
possible to translate this word uh, son instead of servant. But I think in the context here, servant is really the, the better choice because what Peter is conveying here is that Jesus is the servant as described in the Old Testament in Isaiah 41 and 53. Jesus is the servant. When he used that phrase, when he uses that expression, that Jesus, that God glorified his servant Jesus, every one of these Jews would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Who is this servant? Well, if you're familiar with Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 41, you realize that when Peter called Jesus God's servant, he was emphasizing Jesus' suffering. He was drawing our attention to the suffering of Jesus. Remember Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6, the servant was despised and rejected of men. He bore our griefs and our sorrows. He was wounded for our sins. And the totality of our sins was laid on him. Peter says, this Jesus, this one that you, re- that you are rejecting right now, He was the servant who bore our sin, who suffered in our place. Indeed, Jesus was the only one able to suffer for our sins. The second term that he uses here, because he says that God glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And then look at verse 14. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What does it mean for Peter to say that Jesus is the Holy One and the just or the righteous one? Well, I think, again, understand his audience here. Peter is speaking to an audience of Jews. He's conveying to them these Old Testament concepts that, that, that would reveal to them the truth of Jesus Christ. Who is the Holy One, the Righteous One? Well, Psalm 16.10, the psalmist declares that he would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And we realize that Psalm 16.10 is referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That even though he died, he would not decay in the ground, but he would be raised Not only that, but it emphasizes his sinlessness, his complete lack of corruption, his complete separation from anything that would degrade or corrupt. Zechariah 9.9 also uses the phrase, uh, the the just or the righteous one. And in Zechariah 9.9, it's a prophecy of the king coming, riding into Jerusalem on a a donkey. It says the foal, like the colt of a donkey. Your king is coming, it says, holy and righteous or just. We saw that Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus fulfilled that when he rode into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. But these terms are very important because they're more than just describing Jesus' sinless character. They are terms that are used in both Testaments to refer to Jesus' role as the Messiah and the King of Israel. 
But it's important for us to understand that this king is the holy and righteous one. He is the only king who could declare himself sinless and perfect. No other king could lay claim to that. As these men looked around the crowd, as these religious leaders looked at each other, none of them could claim to be the holy and righteous one. Because when, they're, when we're honest, when we really look at who and what we are, we're not holy and we're not righteous. Only Jesus Christ could lay claim to that. He is the holy and righteous one. The only one who qualifies to be the Messiah and King of Israel. And then finally, Peter says there in verse 15 that you killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead. This term Prince of Life is is an interesting term. I think it's ironic here that the Jews led by their priests and religious leaders, put to death the one who is called the Prince of Life. Well, at the same time, they asked for a murderer's life to be spared. But because he is the prince or the author of life, this word can can mean the originator. He is the originator of life. Because of that, he he couldn't be bound by death. He couldn't be held by the grave. And he rose again. That's what he says there. You killed the prince of life, but God raised him from the dead. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10 and Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 convey the same sense. They use the same expression. It's the only other times in scripture that this, uh, this same term, prince of life, is used. In Hebrews 2.10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. He is the captain, the prince of our salvation. He leads the way. But not only that, Hebrews 12 and verse 2, another instance where the same expression is used. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ. He is not only the the one who leads the way, he's the author, the originator of life. He leads the way into life. And he also provides life for all those who choose to follow him. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is the simple truth that that Peter presents us with in Acts. We've seen this over and over again. If you've been with us here since we came to the church, you've seen this. This is nothing new to you this morning. I'm not preaching some new thing. It's just the simple truth of the gospel again. Jesus Christ, he is the one who suffered for your sins yet remained absolutely pure and sinless. The one who was put to death by cruel men, yet the grave could not hold him and he rose again. The one who ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father's throne. 
Yet he sent his Holy Spirit to empower his followers to bear witness that he is a living and true God. The only question I have for you this morning is what is Jesus to you? It can all be academic and we can just talk about this. But what is Jesus to you? Is he the glorified servant of God? The holy and righteous one? The author of your life now and for eternity? Peter concluded his message with the simple declaration that, that there is no salvation to be found in any other. He said, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Simon Kistemacher explains this verse. He says, the Greek text is very specific. It does not say that we can be saved. For this would indicate that man has the inherent ability to achieve salvation. Nor does it say that we may be saved. For then the clause would convey uncertainty. The text is definite. It says by which we must be saved. This signifies that man is under moral obligation to respond to the call to believe in Jesus Christ and thus gain salvation. These, this crowd, if you look at all of Acts chapter 3, Peter explains to them that their rejection of Jesus Christ when they sent him to the cross was done in ignorance. That they were ignorant of who he was and that is why they killed him. But they're no longer ignorant because Peter has declared to them very clearly the truth. As I have tried to do to you this morning, Jesus Christ, truly the servant, the holy and righteous one, the prince of life. Have you responded to the call to believe in Jesus Christ alone to forgive your sins and heal your soul? If not, can I encourage you today to come and speak with me? I want, I want to have someone take you and show you from the Word of God how you can know, not just that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that you can know Him personally, that you can have your sins forgiven. And if you do know Him, as I suspect most, if not all of us here do, then how much does He mean to you? How much does he mean? Robin Gunn relates a story, and I'll close with this, that reflects how we ought to see our Savior. She says this, We went to the open house at the public elementary school. When Rachel's teacher met us, her eyebrows seemed to elevate slightly. She spoke kindly of our first grader, but said she had some concerns. She then invited us to look at the artwork. We would see what she meant. Dozens of brown paper treasure chests were tacked to the bulletin board. Each had a barreled top attached with a brad. On the front was printed, a real treasure would be blank. We walked over and began opening the lids to find Rachel's treasure and see why it concerned the teacher so much. As we peeked into each chest, we saw TVs and Nintendos, a few genies, heaps of gold coins, and a unicorn. Rachel's chest was in the very bottom corner. We had to, to stoop to open it. Inside, our daughter had drawn Christ hanging on a cross with red drops of blood shaped like hearts dripping from his hands. She completed the sentence, a real treasure would be Jesus. Yes. Uh, do you see my concern? The teacher asked, her arms folded across her chest. Her husband agreed, yes, I, I think I see what you mean. 
The J is backwards, isn't it? <laughs> a real treasure would be Jesus. Oh, he is. He is. Because he is the suffering servant. He is the holy and righteous one. And he is the prince of life. Let's close with prayer this morning.